0: Financial regulators sell First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan, marking the third failure of an American bank since March. It's Monday, May 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoy Coming up, the president of the Philippines is in the U.S. to meet with President Biden as the country faces growing tensions with China. Also this hour, we go inside Massachusetts' new behavioral health helpline, part of the state's effort to improve mental health care.
1: Think of the helpline as quite literally that front
0: door into the network of treatment. And the annual Met Gala fundraiser pays tribute to the controversial fashion designer Karl Lagerfeld. People think of him as creating what we think of wealth and what wealth looks like on American and European women. Cloudy with highs in the mid-60s today. It's 7.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Another U.S. bank has failed. California regulators have closed First Republic Bank and put it into receivership. And as NPR's David Gura reports, federal regulators then sold it to bank J.P. Morgan Chase.
3: First Republic Bank customers walked with about $100 billion in deposits after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank failed. Well, after a competitive bidding process that played out over the weekend, J.P. Morgan Chase has bought the rest of First Republic's deposits, about $92 billion in total, and most of its assets, including 84 branches in eight states, which will be open for business today. Customers will have access to their money, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation estimates the cost of First Republic's collapse to the deposit insurance fund will be about $13 billion. David Gurra. NPR News, New York.
2: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is preparing to speak to Israel's parliament today. McCarthy is siding with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a diplomatic tiff between the Israeli leader and President Biden. Biden says he won't soon invite Netanyahu to the White House over the Israeli leader's efforts to change the Israeli judiciary. McCarthy says he'll invite Netanyahu to meet with the U.S. House. Despite the extension of a ceasefire, fighting continues in Sudan today. Kate Bartlett reports the U.N. secretary general is warning the humanitarian situation in that country is rapidly deteriorating. With the conflict now into its third week, Sudanese are becoming used to ceasefires being announced but not holding. In response to what he said was the unprecedented scale and speed with which events were unfolding in the North African country, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres announced he was sending the UN's top humanitarian official to the country. Hundreds have been killed since fighting between the Sudanese army and a paramilitary group broke out on April 15. Tens of thousands of Sudanese are fleeing to neighboring Chad, Egypt and South Sudan, causing a refugee crisis. For npr news i'm kate bartlett in johannesburg mourners in the texas town of cleveland held a vigil last night for five people killed last week by a gunman who had a high-powered rifle one of last week's victims is a young boy survivors of that shooting say they had asked the man to stop firing his weapon in the yard because they were trying to sleep instead they say he came over and opened fire chris brown attended last night's vigil with his two young daughters He says the gunman has not been caught yet.
4: As long as he's out there, more people are in danger, and it could eventually end up affecting you. His next victim could be a family member. His next victim could be you.
2: Texas authorities have now offered an $80,000 reward for information leading to the capture of suspect Francisco Oropeza. This is NPR.
0: From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chanoi. The city of New Bedford is threatening to sue the MBTA over land the agency took for a rail project. The T used its eminent domain powers to seize the land for the South Coast Rail Project, saying it would be beneficial to the public. The city says it was not paid enough for that land. Boston officials will begin removing tent encampments in the area of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard today. The city is resuming tent removal after letting people stay in the area through the winter months. Mayor Michelle Wu's office says people living unsheltered will be asked to move voluntarily. They'll also be offered alternative housing and substance abuse treatment options. Governor Maura Healy's new Western Massachusetts field office opens today in Springfield. The office will be responsible for connecting residents to the governor on a variety of issues concerning the region. Last week, the administration named Kristen Ellico as Western Massachusetts director. Renowned Natick rabbi and author Harold Kushner will be buried today. He died Friday at the age of 88. WBUR's Amy Sokolow shares his daughter's reflections on his legacy.
5: Harold Kushner wrote when bad things happened to good people shortly after the death of his 14-year-old son Aaron from a rare disease. The book became a New York Times bestseller and catapulted him into the spotlight beyond the Jewish community. His daughter, Arielle Kushner-Haber, says he was surprised by his book's success. It meant so much to
2: him that he was able to comfort others with his words. I don't know that that was something he always anticipated would happen, but maybe it was something he hoped he would be able to achieve. Kushner-Haber says
5: her father was also a huge Red Sox fan. One of his splurges after his book's success was season tickets. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow.
0: It's 7.06.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And an evening with Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli, live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at ticketmaster.com. The
0: Bruins' record-breaking season came to a disappointing end last night. The top-seeded bees fell to the Florida Panthers in overtime at the Garden. Final score was 4-3. The Red Sox beat the Cleveland Guardians yesterday 7-1. The Sox will now host the Toronto Blue Jays at Fenway tonight. The Celtics are getting ready to take on the Philadelphia 76ers. Tonight's matchup marks Game 1 of this NBA playoff series for the Seas. In your forecast... It's going to be a bit cloudy this morning. That'll clear up throughout the day and we'll have high temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight, increasing clouds and it drops back into the mid-40s. A rainy day with thunderstorms likely tomorrow. It'll also be windy with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston at 707. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org.
8: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. The second biggest bank to fail in American history has now been acquired by the nation's largest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, took possession of First Republic Bank overnight, and within hours, J.P. Morgan Chase announced it was re- acquiring First Republic's branches, deposits, and most of its assets. To help us sort out the implications, we turn, as we often do, to David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. David, welcome. Good morning. Okay, so what does this mean for First Republicans' bank depositors?
10: Well, a lot of First Republic's deposits have already taken their money elsewhere, but mm. there's $90 billion still there, and that money is safe. They're now deposits at JPMorgan Chase. JPMorgan Chase already had more deposits than any other U.S. bank more than $2 trillion worth of deposits. In fact, it was so big that it had to get a special waiver from regulators to get even bigger. Uh, J.P. Morgan's also taking most of the mortgages and other loans that First Republic made. But the investors in First Republic, its shareholders, are going to be wiped out.
9: Now, First Republic had been looking for a buyer for weeks without success. Why did the deal have to wait for the FDIC to seize the bank?
10: because the hole in First Republic's balance sheet was so deep that no bank would buy it without some help from the government. Other banks bid over the weekend to acquire First Republic, but the law requires uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to take the best deal for the government, and apparently that came from JP Morgan, which is paying $10.6 billion to buy the bank. Uh, The bank and the FDIC are going to share any losses on the loans that First Republic has made and the FDIC is gonna lend J.P. Morgan $50 billion for five years to help finance the purchase. Now, all in all, this is gonna cost the Deposit Insurance Fund about $13 billion. It's a lot of money, But it's less than the fdic expects to lose on silicon valley bank that was 20 billion and other banks are going to get assessed to cover those losses
9: now silicon valley bank and signature bank failed in march when depositors lost confidence and pulled their money out and that threatened to spark more bank runs a mass exodus didn't happen but depositors did leave first republic why the exception there
10: well like Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic had a lot of deposits that were not insured. $100 billion of them fled in the past few months. And it also had a lot of low-interest mortgage loans on its books, and the value of those fell as the Fed raised interest rates. Now, there was an effort to save the bank. Eleven of the nation's biggest banks deposited $30 billion in First Republic to cut kind of reassure depositors, but it simply wasn't enough, and time ran out for them.
9: Now... This is the fourth time in the last two months that the government has taken control of an American lender. Is this over, David, or is this just going to keep happening?
10: That's a good question. (laughs) We'll have to see. In times like these, the failure of one bank often leads people to question the stability of other banks. It's known as contagion to financial market analysts. And there are some other banks that have some similar issues. Now, the fact that all the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and now at First Republic got all their money back, that may reassure depositors at other banks. There are some analysts who are saying this is the last domino to fall, But I think it's too early to sound the all-clear. A lot of banks suffered when the Fed raised interest rates so much in the past year.
9: Now, Fed policymakers meet this week to decide whether to raise interest rates again. How does all of this play into the Fed's decisions?
10: The Fed is still very likely to raise interest rates by another one-quarter percentage point this week, but it may signal that it may be about ready to stop raising interest rates. Fed Chair Jay Powell has pointed out that the banking crisis is making banks more reluctant to lend. And that means there'll be less borrowing and less spending in the economy, which is what the Fed wants. So the banking crisis may substitute for the further rate increases.
9: David Wessel is director of the Hutchins Center at the Brookings Institution. Thank you, David. You're welcome.
8: Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are making a new effort to hold the U.S. Supreme Court to a stronger ethical standard. The push comes after ethics questions were raised by reports that a wealthy Republican donor gave Justice Clarence Thomas luxury vacations and bought three po- properties in Georgia from him. Another report found Justice Neil Gorsuch did not disclose the identity of the buyer of property he owned and sold in Colorado. Now, it turned out it was the head of a law firm that had multiple cases before the court. The Senate Judiciary Committee opens hearings tomorrow. Democratic Senator Mazie Hirono of Hawaii is on the committee. Senator, all nine justices on the court have released a joint statement saying they will voluntarily adhere to the existing code of conduct, but they push back on proposals for independent oversight or ethics rules that the court would have to follow. Uh, Senator, how do you respond to their seemingly united front there?
11: Oh, we, I would say that um, that is too little too late for the Supreme Court and they need a strong code of ethics. They are the highest court in the land. They should be held to the highest standards. So ethical standards. And that is why we are having a hearing because that's not where the court is. Now,
8: your committee asked Chief Justice Roberts to appear. He said no. What did you want to ask him?
11: We wanted to ask him why they don't have a strong code of ethics that applies to all other judicial branches. So, you know, so that he could explain to us. Not to mention, by the way, the five page letter he sent to the chairman of the committee, talking about policies and practices we don't know when these policy and practices were adopted by the supreme court there are a lot of questions and by the way though, when, the, when chief justice roberts made his end of year report uh, in 2021 he noted that uh, there were certain things that they shouldn't be doing such as judge shopping so i think that 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 he opened the door and acknowledges that there need to be some changes in how the judiciary operates and in my view, why the Supreme Court should not have a code of ethics.
12: And we're going
8: to get to Judge Shopping coming up in just a second. What, what what do you want the committee to consider? I mean, what would be your
11: top priority for ethics rules for the Supreme Court? That they adopt a strong code of ethics that does at least three, three things. And there's a bill that would do that, that one, require the Supreme Court to adopt a code of ethics. Two, have a much stronger recusal provisions. And three, have a process whereby uh, these kinds of... Things can be investigated.
13: Is ethics if the Supreme reform? Court is,
11: uh, pardon me.
8: Right. Is ethics reform going to happen, whether the court participates or not?
11: <clears throat> yes, regardless of whether the chief justice shows up or not, the the committee will go forward with our hearings with uh, ethical experts to point out why it's important for the Supreme Court to have such a code.
8: So, regardless of any justice cooperate, I mean, it doesn't matter who. Right? Yes. Okay. Now last week we mentioned judge shopping. Last week you introduced a bill uh, focused on stopping judge shopping. That's a practice where plaintiffs deliberately file lawsuits in districts overseen by just by judges who they know are going to be sympathetic to their side. How does your legislation stop this practice?
11: What my bill does is to uh, to create a um, provisions whereby these kinds of of claims, these kinds of suits goes directly to the district court in Washington, DC, which has a lot lot of experience in dealing with questions relating to federal law, federal rules or federal administrative uh, um, decisions. So it would it would create a um, a way that only that the district court in DC will hear these cases and and will stop judge shopping in places like Texas where, 20 of the 27 divisions there has only one judge, which makes it really is easy to judge shop. So and if a court my order bill will provide exclusive a, jurisdiction. Yeah.
8: And if a court order only applies to an individual, they could still uh, they could still file yes. in a local federal court. Mm-hmm. Okay, um,
11: but That's usually not the way judge shopping works. They want something that applies nationally, which is exactly what happened with Judge Kazmarek.
8: All right. That is Democratic Senator Mazie Hirono of Hawaii. Thank you very much, Senator. Okay.
11: Thank you
9: later today a red carpet rolls down the steps of the metropolitan museum of art in new york in preparation for the Matt gala an event some call the super bowl of fashion
8: and this year's theme for the charity fundraiser honors the late designer carl lagerfeld
9: people think of
14: him as Creating what we think of wealth like, and what wealth looks like
9: on American and European women. Rebecca, Rebecca Jennings is a senior correspondent for Vox. She says Lagerfeld is best known for reviving the luxury brand Chanel.
14: From the eighties to the nineties, he he modernized all the classic elements of what Chanel was: uh, the the tweed, the quilted bags, the chains. Um, this very black and white stark color scheme and made it cool to a younger generation.
8: But it would be impossible to talk about Chanel's creative director without mentioning his views about the people who buy and sometimes promote high fashion.
14: He said some really awful things. He had a particular hatred of fat women and curvy women and basically anyone who was not rail thin.
9: Yeah, apparently wealth to Lagerfeld is skinny. He has a history of deriding women as too fat, and he's opposed the fashion industry starting to at least try to be more inclusive to show women as we actually are in a range of sizes and shapes.
14: He's also been
9: pretty candid
14: about which celebrities he approves of and doesn't approve of. He's described Adele as a little too fat um, and then said he was referring to Lana Del Rey.
8: The German-born designer was also criticized for remarks he made in 2017 about Syrian refugees in Germany.
14: He said to a French television show that... One cannot, even if there are decades between them, kill millions of Jews so that you can bring millions of their worst enemies in their place.
9: Yikes. And those words. That's why Jennings says she thinks the choice to idolize Lagerfeld at the Met Gala, which she'll be covering, reflects poorly on the industry. It is
14: sort of, in its own way, saying that we're still okay with the things that Karl Lagerfeld believed and did and said.
8: The Met Gala red carpet event begins streaming tonight on social media starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. And Layla, when, and this is gonna happen, when <laughs> they finally get around to inviting me, I have a triple striped teal velour tracksuit that is so red carpet ready. Oh, I mean, I'm
9: so sure you're gonna get invited and they're with gonna love that a morning edition cap
0: suit. and mm-hmm. a morning
8: edition shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
9: think
0: Break so. Break the internet. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Monday morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up in about four minutes on Morning Edition, we hear from the leader of the China-led Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is successfully competing with the World Bank for influence in Africa and elsewhere. It's seven nineteen.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open, worcesterart.org. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. I'm Deepa
16: Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station
0: that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Overcast skies gradually clear this morning as temperatures rise to a high of 66. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight skies grow cloudy again and it falls to a low around 46. Tomorrow mostly cloudy with a high near 58. Showers and thunderstorms are likely throughout the day. Right now it's 58 degrees in Boston at 720. Get a summary of the latest news from WBUR in your inbox every morning with the WBUR Today newsletter. It's a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. So Subscribe now at WBUR.org newsletters.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
9: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. I'm
18: Amy e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Can any Chinese institution stay above the competition between the U.S. and China? The U.S. has attacked Chinese companies from Huawei to the owners of TikTok, but the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank wants to stay above that. This bank is seven years old. It's seen as part of China's effort to become a bigger global player. Like the U.S.-based World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the AIIB finances economic development, especially in poorer countries. Of course, the U.S. has been pushing back on China's global influence. The bank's leader, Jin Lechuan, visited Washington last month and told us his bank is independent. It welcomed investment from nations in Europe, as well as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, which means those other nations balance China's power.
19: And if there's any difference, we in the management try to reach consensus rather than push through uh, any major decisions by voting, by resorting to vote. We don't do that.
18: You visit Washington in a time, of course, of difficult relations between the United States and China. You would like to be an independent institution, though. How have those deteriorating relations affected your work,
19: if at all? I think uh, a lot of people would have raised the same kind of questions to us. But those who know how this bank is managed, how this bank is doing its business, What all understand, actually, AIIB has maintained very good close cooperation with American governmental institutions, with the financial institutions, and the real sector businesses.
18: The last time I spoke with a top executive of your bank in Beijing some years ago, he emphasized that the AIIB has different priorities and different standards for investments around the world than the government of China the Chinese government is sponsoring these belt and road projects as they're called investing in a lot of different countries and what is seen by critics as kind of Chinese outreach of power your bank has declined to get very
19: involved in those projects or it was then is that still the case? I think the basic principle is we process projects proposed to this bank by the client members we don't pick projects from the Chinese government's list if A particular member happens to be having a project which were considered part of the Bell Road program and they proposed this to us, we would process the project by the same standard. Any project proposed to us must comply with our standards.
18: I think in your most recent report you said that a majority of your projects qualified as climate projects. (laughs)
19: By July the 1st this year, all of the projects we approve would be Paris-aligned. Well, meaning the Paris Agreement on That's right. Reduction. It will be okay. aligned with Paris Agreement starting from July the 1st this year.
18: Do you believe that it is possible to stay within the Paris Climate Goals, limiting the effects of climate change, without causing economic damage to people who are already poor, already suffering?
19: If you really want to achieve the long-term benefit because you think this is in the best interest of humanity, then there must be some sacrifice for the short term. For instance, when we do a lot of projects to push for renewables and uh, reallocate resources, what does that mean? That mean perhaps uh, the energy prices would go up a little bit, uh, this may uh, lead to some of the shutting down of the coal mines, shutting down of some polluting companies. It is painful for certain segments of the society. So, for instance, if the energy prices go up by 5 or 10 percent, of course, this is a burden, but you need to reallocate your uh, resources, you need to readjust your daily expenditure when you think it's in the interest of your children and grandchildren. But with regard to the subsidy, I think this is a very much interesting issue. Mm -hmm. The government should not provide subsidy across the board. When they raise the energy prices, power tariff or whatever, lowest income people should be protected. You would argue that is the responsibility of government to take care
18: of the people who may be harmed. Yes, of course. Yes, of course. Mr. President, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Jin Chuen is president of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is headquartered in Beijing, China. We've also called Robert Daly here in Washington. He directs the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Wilson Center. Welcome back to the program. Good to be with you. Is this bank accepted as more independent than other Chinese
20: institutions? Yes, it is. And this has been a very closely watched pot. The United States and Japan have been suspicious of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank from the very beginning. But in fact, it's won quite wide acceptance, and the quality of its lending has been good. Is there an unspoken contrast here
18: between the investments of this development bank, which you say seem to be relatively wise so far, and the investments around the world of the government of China?
20: There's a big difference between lending of the AIIB and the lending that has happened under what China calls its Belt and Road Initiative, which comprises most of China's international development lending. Many countries that are already debt distressed have enormous amounts, not only of publicly acknowledged debt to China through the Belt and Road Initiative, but they also have a lot of hidden debt exposure to China, about $309 billion in lending uh, to African countries and some other debt distressed areas that its people don't know about because it's been uh, con- these deals have been conducted in private. So AIIB has not been part of that. They've not been tainted with the BRI scandals.
18: Is this bank growing to the point where we will need to think of it in tandem with other global institutions like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund?
20: The AIIB is already uh, one of the top multilateral development banks. It's, it's at the lower end of the scale in terms of its total capitalization. We were quite worried about it, especially during the Obama administration when it was launched. The Obama administration opposed other countries joining the AIIB. Again, worried that it would be an instrument for the growth of Chinese power. To date, it has been a welcome addition of capacity for infrastructure lending, but it's been very far from transformative.
18: Robert Daly of the Wilson Center, always appreciate your insights. Thanks so much. Thank you. A U.S. Treasury spokesperson told us the U.S. remains focused on its existing commitments and has no plans to join the bank. It's NPR News.
0: Thanks for starting your Monday with WBOR. Coming up in about five minutes on Morning Edition, the president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is in D.C. to meet with President Joe Biden in an effort to strengthen ties with the U.S. as tensions with China grow. It's 729. A quick reminder that the WBOR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the WBOR app
6: in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALprime.com.
12: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation says J.P. Morgan Chase has acquired the deposits and most of the assets of First Republic Bank. The California bank had struggled since the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in early March. Here's NPR's David Gura.
3: Unlike what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, this time around the FDIC did not use its emergency powers to do this. And Morgan's CEO Jamie Dimon said in a statement, the bank made its bid in a way that will minimize costs to the FDIC's deposit insurance fund and cost will be about $13 billion.
12: The FDIC says First Republic's 84 branches in eight states will open today as branches of JPMorgan Chase. A state of emergency has been declared in Virginia Beach, Virginia where a tornado moved through the area yesterday, damaging dozens of homes. No deaths or serious injuries are reported. Power was knocked out to hundreds of homes and businesses. The FBI says it has no leads on the whereabouts of a man wanted in the shooting deaths of five people in Texas. Authorities say the man killed four adults and a child living next to his rural property after one of them asked the man to stop firing his weapon because of a sleeping baby. The fatal shootings occurred in Cleveland, about 45 miles northeast of Houston. This is NPR News from Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chenoy. Police are investigating a deadly shooting in Lawrence early Sunday that left one person dead and five others injured. Law enforcement say the violence happened at a house party. They say they don't believe the shooting was a random attack. A Massachusetts prosecutor says his office was well-prepared for a decision by the state's highest court that affects many old drunk driving cases. The Supreme Judicial Court decided that tests administered with a particular type of breathalyzer between 2011 and 2019 were not valid. Those convicted with that evidence can seek a new trial. Stephen Gagney is a prosecutor with the Northwestern DA's office.
12: If the breathalyzer evidence was at the core of the case, if we couldn't prove the case without it, we have not been opposing motions to withdraw guilty pleas or allowing motions for new trials.
0: Gagne says his office stopped using breathalyzer evidence at the start of the legal battle. A heads up for drivers, some ongoing construction work could impact your evening and early morning commutes. Several lanes of the Tobin Bridge will be closed starting tonight. The closures take place weekly, Monday through Thursday, starting at 6 p.m. and lasting until 5 a.m. The State Highway Department says the closures will remain in place for around three months. It's 6:32. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
7: Brookline Bank where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com,
0: member FDIC. The Bruins' season ended last night when the Florida Panthers scored the winning goal in overtime. The Boston Globe calls the 4-3 loss, quote, one of the most stunning collapses in Boston sports history. Meanwhile, the Celtics play their first round two game against the Philadelphia 76ers tonight at the Garden, and the Red Sox are celebrating a six-run victory against the Cleveland Guardians. They play at Fenway again tonight, this time against the Toronto Blue Jays. Cloudy skies will gradually clear this morning. We'll eventually have a windy day in the mid-60s. Tonight, back to overcast skies and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and upper 50s, with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 733. You're with WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scrippsnews.com forward slash TV. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
9: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C.
17: And i
8: Martinez in Culver City, California. The president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is in the U.S. to meet with President Biden. Marcos says his aim is to forge an even stronger relationship with Washington, and China's aggressive territorial expansion in the South China Sea will likely be one of the top items on the agenda. NPR's Michael Sullivan covers Southeast Asia, joins us now from his base in Thailand. Uh, Michael, the name Marcos, probably one that uh, many are familiar with, but give us a refresher on who he is and his family's history.
21: So, A, this is a man whose family was forced to flee Malacanang Palace, the presidential palace, on board U.S. helicopters back in 1986 as the People Power Revolution swept his father, the dictator Marcos, from power. The family left for exile in Hawaii with bags and boxes stuffed with cash and gold and jewelry. And his father died there in 1989. The family eventually returned to the Philippines, and went about rebuilding the family image and revitalizing the family dynasty. And it's worked spectacularly. And here we are almost 40 years later with Ferdinand Marcos Jr. as the democratically elected president of the Philippines. So it's a pretty remarkable comeback story.
8: And now the return of the younger Marcos to the U.S. I'm assuming it's all, uh, most
21: of, at least most of it should be about China. Absolutely, and both sides recognize that they need each other. Marcos's predecessor, the mercurial uh, Rodrigo Duterte, was famously and often profanely anti-American, and he cozied up to China in a way that alarmed U.S. policymakers. Um, the relationship suffered as a result, but it's now clearly back on track under Marcos. He's expanded a defense agreement with the U.S. that allows the U.S. access to four additional military sites, some of which are Taiwan-facing, which obviously alarms Beijing. And the two sides just last week wrapped up their biggest joint exercises ever, which ended with them sinking a target in the South China Sea, off the Philippine coast. And the optics there were pretty clear. And so why is the Philippines so concerned about China and the South China Sea? Well, China has been aggressively expanding its presence there, building military bases on disputed reefs, as well as repeatedly harassing Philippine fishermen in the area. Now, remember, China claims pretty much the entire South China Sea is its own, even though an international tribunal rejected that claim in 2016 in a case brought by the Philippines. And just last Friday, Manila accused China's Coast Guard of aggressive tactics after near-collision with a Philippine warship, and on Saturday, the State Department issued a statement calling on Beijing to, quote, desist from its provocative and unsafe conduct.
8: All right, now what does Marcos hope to accomplish while he's here?
21: Well, the U.S. and the Philippines have this decades-old mutual defense treaty, And Marcos, I think, will be looking for assurances that the U.S. has his back in any open confrontation with China, where the red line is that would oblige the U.S. to come to Manila's aid. During the Obama and Trump administrations, there was a sense in Manila that the answer to that question wasn't really clear. In announcing this visit, the White House declared the U.S. commitment to the defense of the Philippines is, quote, ironclad. I'd expect Marcos will be asking Biden exactly what ironclad means. There will be other issues discussed, more US investment, climate change, for example. What probably won't get talked about much is human rights abuses, either those that occurred during his father's rule or during President Duterte's controversial war on drugs now being investigated by the International Criminal Court. Marcos's vice president, by the way, A, is Duterte's daughter, Sarah. That's NPR's Michael Sullivan in Thailand. Michael, thanks. You're welcome.
9: Home mortgage interest rates are now close to 7%, making it a really tough time to buy a house. And prices are still way higher than they were a few years ago. But some people are still buying. NPR's Juma Say reports on why.
22: Sharif Benson has lived in apartments all his life. Not just with his family, growing up in Dallas, but in college, graduate school, and post-grad too. Now a pharmacist in Columbus, Ohio, Benson is 30 and doesn't want to live in tiny apartments anymore. If there was a great time, I've basically already missed it. And if I waited around for another perfect opportunity where prices were low and rates were low, I might be waiting another lifetime. He started looking early last year, and the goal wasn't just to find a place that he could call his own. Benson's parents are from Nigeria, and he's the oldest of his three siblings. Being a first-generation, you know, American, there's the idea that I want to take care of my parents when I'm older, and I can't do that renting someone else's space. Buying his own place would also make him the first homeowner in his family, which is important to him as a Black American. In terms of, you know, building generational wealth, which you hear over and over again, it sounds like a cliche now, but like, if you're going to pay money to live somewhere anyway, why not own the place you stay? But the supply of available homes nationwide has been unusually low for years. During the pandemic, that tight supply, combined with super low interest rates, sent home prices through the roof. From 2019 to 2022, they rose about 40%. Prices have begun to fall, just a little, about 2% since this time last year. But today's much higher interest rates still make buying just about as expensive as it's ever been. So a lot fewer people are looking to buy right now.
23: This time last year, it was just crazy. It was a feeding frenzy. It's almost like, you know, piranha in the water, and the water was just bubbling and everything.
22: Donald Payne has been selling homes in Columbus for over two decades. He says things aren't as hectic as they were during the pandemic, but still, his advice to buyers is the same.
23: You see it, you like it, you try your best to lock it down right now. Because if you if you if you sleep till tomorrow, it's gone.
22: Lisa Sturdivant is the chief economist at the real estate agency Bright MLS. She says across the nation, first time homebuyers are finding new, non traditional ways to make things affordable, like living with their parents.
24: So we're finding that people are having to get more creative, whether it's through multi generational living or buying in parts of the country that Folks maybe hadn't expected to because they can now work remotely.
22: She also says that a lot of people will need to be creative because she doesn't see prices falling much further. This is the living room here. Nice open space. In Columbus, being creative paid off for Sharif Benson. He's found this duplex that he's buying with a friend. Their plan is to live in one of the duplex's units and rent out the other. As a pharmacist, Benson also got a special kind of healthcare professional loan. It's the only way he's been able to make this dream a reality. Touring the property one last time before closing, Benson says he's excited for the years ahead. It feels like a surreal moment coming out of, or what feels like coming out of the pandemic and being able to take a little bit more control of my life. And it gives me a lot of hope and a lot of happiness, actually. In a small room in the corner of the top floor with a window overlooking the street, Benson says he's overwhelmed that soon he's going to call this corner of Southeast Columbus home.
23: I think this will be my neighborhood. It's a lovely neighborhood. neighborhood.
22: (laughs) My neighborhood. (sighs) Juma Say, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBUR. I'm Rupa Chanoi in Boston. In just a few minutes at 745, we learn about a key part of Massachusetts' plan to improve mental health care, a new behavioral health line. And in your forecast, it'll be cloudy through about mid-morning. Then skies will gradually clear. Highs will be in the mid-60s, and it'll be windy. Some clouds move back in tonight, and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 50s, and showers and thunderstorms are likely all day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 743.
15: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. With a range of up to 301 miles, the BMW i4 is 100% electric and 100% BMW. The first all-electric BMW I-4 is available at your local BMW centers.
0: One of the largest banks in Massachusetts is now owned by J.P. Morgan Chase. Federal regulators sold First Republic Bank early this morning. First Republic has branches in Boston, Cambridge, and Wellesley. Those branches will reopen later today as J.P. Morgan banks. Boston-based Hebrew Senior Life has a new president and CEO. Stephen Landers will be the new head of the senior living organization. Landers is a geriatric physician. He comes to Boston after heading the Visiting Nurse Association Health Group for over a decade. A Brighton sake bar is rated one of the best in the world. The Koji Club made the list of 21 best new restaurants around the globe by Conde Nast Traveler. The Koji Club opened last year. It's 744.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.
0: You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Massachusetts health officials are taking steps they hope will improve mental health care. One part of the state's plan is a free helpline that people can call or text to get treatment. WBUR's Deborah Becker explains how it works.
1: Thank you for calling the Massachusetts Behavioral Line. This is Ashley speaking, resource and referral specialist. How can I help you?
25: In this simulated training call, Ashley Dakota, who answers the state's new behavioral health helpline, talks with a colleague pretending to be a caller.
11: I really am in
25: need of some help, and I'm hoping that I can be seen today. She tells Dakota she's hearing voices and feels worthless.
24: I don't even know if I want to be here. Um, I don't really want to hurt myself, but I'm just tired of struggling with these
25: voices. Dakota reassures her their conversation is confidential unless a situation is dangerous.
1: I do need to inform you that we have an obligation to protect you or someone else if we learn of serious risk of harm.
25: To assess risk, Dakota asks questions about things such as history of violence. She then connects with a community behavioral health center, or CBHC, to get an immediate appointment either at the center or at the caller's home.
1: I am going to call the CBHC now, so there will be a brief pause before we connect together.
25: Depending on the need, helpline staff members try to get patients an appointment quickly, in some cases the same day. After the appointment, the helpline also follows up, according to Sharon Hansen, CEO of the Mass Behavioral Health Partnership, which oversees the helpline.
20: Once you're connected, we will get off the call, but then we'll also call back to make sure you receive the
2: services you need.
25: The helpline has fielded more than 6,000 calls since it started operating in January. In March, more than a quarter of the calls resulted in a referral to an appointment. Anyone can call, regardless of insurance, and there is no cost. The state expects it will spend $18.5 million a year operating the helpline. State Department of Mental Health Commissioner Brooke Doyle says the helpline connects people with whatever service is appropriate, perhaps seeing a private provider, finding substance use treatment or getting emergency assistance
1: think of the helpline as quite literally that front door into the network of treatment
25: the helpline was put in motion by the baker administration as part of its so-called roadmap for behavioral health reform that's a comprehensive plan to improve mental health care throughout the state the helpline operates in 200 languages takes texts, and has an online chat function. Doyle says confidentiality is important, but 911 would be contacted if helpline workers believe there's an immediate danger. A main goal of the helpline, she says, is to make it easier to navigate the treatment system to prevent crises and relieve hospital emergency departments.
1: People were going to emergency departments as first-line responses when they needed help getting into treatment. That because outpatient community-based treatment options were confusing and hard to enter, that sometimes people waited too long.
25: There are questions, though, about whether there are enough mental health professionals to provide treatment quickly. While reviews of the helpline so far are mostly positive, some advocates say the nationwide shortage of behavioral health care workers can cause delays. Pam Sager is with the Parent Professional Advocacy League, which works toward improving mental health care for children and families.
0: I think those warm handoffs, while that's the goal, they're still struggling to really make good connections for families. Families are waiting a long time to get uh, therapists
25: um, and other providers. Sager acknowledges that the helpline and the roadmap just launched, and this is the beginning of what will likely be a long journey toward improved mental health care. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah
0: Becker. To access the state's new behavioral health helpline, you can call or text 833 773
24: 2445.
0: It's a Monday morning in Boston, and you're with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just a couple minutes, we learn about HBO's new effort to turn the story of G. Gordon Liddy and the failed Watergate break-in into a dark comedy series. And at 8.10, more on our top story this morning, the sale of First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan Chase. It's 7.49.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
22: I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Massachusetts branches of First Republic Bank are among those now owned by J.P. Morgan Chase after bank regulators seized control of the company. Ukrainian military officials say they shot down most of the air missiles Russia launched this morning in its latest attack on the country. Meanwhile, Texas officials are looking for a man who they say is on the run after shooting and killing five people. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
15: WBUR supporters include an evening with Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli, live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at Ticketmaster.com.
0: Clearing skies this morning make way for a windy, mostly sunny afternoon in the mid-60s. Tonight, back to cloudy skies and mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and upper 50s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 752.
8: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez.
9: And I'm Leila Fadel. Writers have spilled a lot of ink on the Watergate scandal. It's also gotten a lot of screen time, including in that iconic film, All the President's Men. But a new five-part miniseries explores one aspect that's lived in the shadows of the stories about President Richard Nixon and the journalists who exposed the Watergate burglary that ultimately led to the president's resignation in 1974. White House Plumbers, premiering today on HBO, focuses primarily on two men tasked with covering up White House scandals and plugging leaks from inside the White House. They also planned and executed the Watergate break-ins. The so-called plumbers were led by E. Howard Hunt, a former CIA officer played by Woody Harrelson, and G. Gordon Liddy, a Nazi-sympathizing former FBI agent played by Justin Thoreau. I spoke with Thoreau and director David Mandel, and they told me how they turned a dark chapter of American history into a tale that's so shocking it's comical
13: those details those things that you cannot believe are real that you're kind of like laughing and horrified about that's exactly why i signed on i don't want to put words in justin's mouth but that's why he signed on that's why woody signed on we all kept going like this can't be true oh my god it's true we have to do this that's what it was i will tell you i certainly never thought of it as a comedy because to me It's such a horrific period in American history. I mean, obviously, it is funny, but to me, it's a tragedy that makes you laugh. The more we dug into the details, in strange ways, both the more tragic it got and the funnier it got. It was sort of an unbelievable thing.
9: So I'm curious, Justin, what about your character is actually fictional? Was this who he was? He wrote a
26: book called Will, which uh, was his sort of autobiography, which sometimes reads a bit like a tall tale. When he talks about his childhood, he sort of depicts himself as this sort of scrawny Irish guy from Hoboken who got bullied a lot. And he would do these insane things to sort of get over his fears, one of which was He was afraid of rats, so he trapped a rat, killed it, and then ate it. And he was afraid of thunderstorms, so he would strap himself to a tree during a thunder and lightning storm. And I had sort of sympathy for him as sort of this bullied kid. Like some people who get bullied, they look for sources of strength in odd places. Justin brought this up the other night, and I've been thinking a
13: lot about it. If Gordon Liddy existed nowadays, you know, he'd be in a chat room somewhere. He's actually, oddly, a very modern character who was really mostly obsessed with getting famous. And he really didn't care, kind of in some ways, how it happened. There's a desperation to him. That's part of why he's so Mm. dangerous. So I find that sort of fascinating about him. And that's sort of something that I think Justin leaned into in just an incredible way.
9: You know, watching it, what, 50 years later, this thing that happened and watching your character in particular, Liddy, there was something very familiar about him, actually. I mean, he is one of the fathers of right wing radio, a, a kind of Trumpian figure.
26: Well, I just saw pa- the obvious parallels. He was happy to take a bullet for Nixon, literally. So I think he did, unfortunately, create a, a sort of a playbook for being unapologetic about criminal activity.
9: There is another moment. Again, a moment where I was like, let me just check if this is actually who he was. And it's a dinner party at Liddy's home with the hunts. Well, he puts on a record, and maybe you expect some jazz. Uh, Liddy opts for an Adolf Hitler speech about art as propaganda. And it's the first time you realize uh, this guy seems to be dabbling in eugenics. We'll just play this clip.
14: How did you two meet? His
16: sister set us up.
26: I selected Fran for her high intelligence, she used to work at IBM.
16: Receptionist.
26: And, of course, her Celtic Teutonic genes.
16: <laughs> Lineage is very important to Gordon. Even more so than intelligence.
26: I hope you all brought your appetites tonight, because Frenny makes a mean roast.
27: I love it. Is, is that Hitler? Yes.
9: So he's a former FBI agent, an army veteran, a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, how did this guy have a line to the White House?
26: David.
13: (laughs) I think, unfortunately, this true believerism that has been infecting politics really since Nixon, we keep thinking as an American people, we have very sort of, I don't know, I like to say we have very short memories. And so Watergate happens, and then we think to ourselves, well, at least that's over with. That can never happen again. And then it happens again and again and again.
9: You've had experience before dealing with very funny, very corrupt characters in D.C. in the HBO series Veep. How much did you draw on that experience when you looked at this project? It is very different. Obviously, Veep
13: is a pure comedy with very written jokes. You know, this show will make you laugh, but they're not jokes. It's character and real-world things that you just find so shocking and horrible where this mix of oh, my God, they were breaking in to try and, you know, basically undermine the will of the American people, and they had to break in four times. And you sort of laugh uncomfortably at this actual fact that you just, even people who know a lot about Watergate don't know that fact. Yeah. Really, these are guys that just are so desperate to be one step closer to power. And I think that's something that unfortunately infects just D.C. as a whole.
20: Hmm.
9: But we're also watching at a time where we're living through the ramifications of a different attempt to overthrow a free election in this country through disinformation. And so, yeah, there was so much that felt so relevant to today, even though it was so long ago.
13: We certainly didn't lean into it, but we wanted it there. That every time you hear them talking about the press being evil, you kind of would go, hey, that does sound familiar. And in a way, maybe that if it gives you a chance to look at what's going on today and start to realize, wow, this has been going on much longer than I realized. None of this is new. That maybe it kind of gives you a little bit of perspective, that you kind of get the modern-day perspective on Watergate, and you kind of get this...
26: 50-year perspective on what's going on right now in our government. There's almost something kind of adorable or corny. I mean, it's obviously horrific, but by comparison, they were keeping the quiet part quiet still, and thank God Nixon could be shamed enough to actually resign, whereas now, <laughs> there's been so many impeachments it's of both Republican and Democratic presidents it's like, oh, we're well, this procedural process that's going to happen, but nothing happens.
13: The other day, uh, the uh, author and reporter, Jonathan Allen, just sort of said these that, that it's important to watch this show because it reminds you what shame is. You know, we've all forgotten what shame is in politics.
9: David Mandel is the director of the HBO series White House Plumbers, and Justin Thoreau plays the role of G. Gordon Liddy. David, Justin, thank you so much.
26: Thank you. Thank you so much.
9: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
7: And I'm A. Martinez. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, celebrating Cinco de Mayo and catering taco bars to offices in greater Boston. Online ordering at lacuchara.com.
28: I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: The FDIC has seized First Republic Bank and overseen its sale to JPMorgan Chase in the latest effort to shore up consumer confidence. It's Monday, May 1st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, we hear from some of the thousands of people making the dangerous journey out of Sudan.
29: A lot of bombs, a lot of bullets everywhere. Um, dead bodies everywhere.
0: Also this hour, Oklahoma weighs how close to death someone has to be to qualify for an abortion. They said we cannot touch you unless you are crashing
30: in front of us or you are fixing to have a heart attack.
0: And the pandemic shutdown forced many local theater companies into financial crisis, but it also offered some an opportunity.
5: It was a gift to be able to sort of take time to try to helm something that would come back in a stronger iteration of itself
0: and meet the moment. Cloudy skies gradually clear in the mid-60s. It's 8.01. Now the news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A third bank has failed this year in the U.S. Federal regulators acted to save the collapsing First Republic Bank over the weekend. They sold it to global bank J.P. Morgan Chase. First Republic's troubles surfaced after two other banks in the U.S. with similar problems were taken over in March. These problems got worse last week. Brookings Institution senior fellow David Wessel says people who have money in the bank now have been protected.
10: A lot of First Republic's deposits have already taken their money elsewhere, but Mm. there's $90 billion still there, and that money
2: is safe. There are now deposits at J.P. Morgan Chase. He spoke to NPR's Morning Edition, but unlike depositors at First Republic, the bank's investors are not protected and will lose their investments. Russian missile attacks overnight injured 25 people in central Ukraine and damaged an industrial warehouse near a railroad station. NPR's Joanna Kikisis reports from Kyiv, Russia has stepped up attacks on Ukraine ahead of a planned Ukrainian counteroffensive to push out Russian forces. Ukrainian
7: air defenses shot down 15 of the 18 Russian missiles aimed at the capital, Kyiv, and other Ukrainian cities. But at least two hit an industrial facility in the central city of Pavlohrad, sparking a large powerful fire there, according to Serhii Lusak, the head of the local military administration. The blast injured 25 people, including three children. A Russian-installed official in the occupied Zaporizhia region wrote on Telegram that the missiles targeted railway infrastructure and a fuel depot in Pavlohrad. The attack comes after a Ukrainian drone hit an oil storage facility in Crimea, which Russia occupied
2: in 2014. Joanna Kekesis, NPR News, Kyiv. In South Texas, the city of Brownsville has declared a disaster with the arrival of a huge influx of migrants across the border. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports.
19: Border
31: Patrol officials say in the eight days leading up to last Friday, more than 15,000 migrants crossed over into the U.S. into the border town. Gloria Chavez is a border patrol agent for the area.
14: And we start noticing the majority of that uptick is related to Venezuela nationals. Many of them, as you know, who have been waiting south of the river in encampments
1: there in that location.
31: Chavez says the area's two major holding facilities are already well beyond capacity. The influx comes before the end of Title 42 on May 11th, which allows the U.S. to immediately return migrants across the border. Officials are expecting an even larger surge of migrants. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio.
2: Officials in Texas have issued an $80,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of a man wanted in the shooting deaths of five people. The suspect, Francisco Oropeza, is accused of killing his neighbors, one of them a child. You're listening to NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston's cryptocurrency startups are remaining optimistic amid a dark time in the wider world of crypto. Hundreds of cryptocurrency entrepreneurs, developers and investors gathered in the city this weekend for one of the first major crypto conferences since the pandemic. WBWR's Walter Wuthman reports.
32: Last year was a bad one for cryptocurrency. Bitcoin lost about 60 percent of its value when the large crypto exchange FTX collapsed. But those at the first ETH Boston conference since 2019 sounded optimistic. Phil McManus is one of the conference organizers.
3: There's just amazing technology being built in this city. And as much as a lot of the media headlines are about some of the fallout and terrible things that happened last year, there's incredible technology being built that is the future.
32: McManus says he thinks the many small startups that make up Boston's crypto ecosystem are well poised to weather the storm. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: Boston Medical Center leaders are calling on city, state, federal, and community organizations to help find housing for Haitian refugees. More than 400 unhoused families, many of them from Haiti, have slept in the hospital's lobby this year. Last Wednesday, alone, 55 adults and children stayed in the lobby overnight. Boston Medical Center Dr. Megan Sandal says that number is trending upward in recent weeks as Haiti endures ongoing violence.
33: We are
14: really trying to treat them with the dignity that they deserve. A lot of these families have been through really traumatizing, difficult situations. And we're really trying to find ways to have a different place for people to go to be able to seek those services.
0: She says the hospital has been doing its best to provide the people with items like blankets and baby formula. The city of New Bedford wants to sue the MBTA over land it took for the South Coast Rail Project. The project is meant to connect the southeastern part of the state to Boston. The property was seized by the agency using eminent domain. City officials say they were underpaid for the land. They also say they did not get any other land as a replacement. Funeral services take place today for Natick rabbi and best-selling author Harold Kushner. Kushner wrote more than a dozen books, including When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Services will take place at Temple Israel in Natick, where Kushner served as a rabbi for more than two decades. He died Friday at age 88. It's 8.06.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. The Bruins' record-breaking season ended with a major
0: upset last night. They fell to the Florida Panthers 4-3 in overtime at the Garden. The Red Sox beat Cleveland yesterday 7-1. Tonight, the Sox host the Toronto Blue Jays at Fenway. And the Celtics host the Philadelphia 76ers at the Garden tonight for Game 1 of the second round playoffs. Patchy fog and cloudy skies will slowly clear away this morning. We'll have high temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight, increasing clouds and it drops into the mid-40s. A rainy day with thunderstorms likely tomorrow. It'll also be windy with highs in the upper 50s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston at 807.
7: WBUR supporters include CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. It's
8: Morning Edition from NPR News, Ami Martinez in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Layla Falden in Washington, D.C. Another US bank has failed, the third one this year after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank.
8: Overnight, California regulators closed First Republic Bank and put it into receivership. Then federal regulators announced JP Morgan Chase, the biggest of the big banks, has bought the majority of First Republic's assets and
9: deposits. NPR's David Gurrow joins us now with the latest. Good morning, David. Hey Lila. Okay, so what is JP Morgan Chase buying and how did the sale come to be?
3: Well, J.P. Morgan is buying all the deposits at First Republic Bank, about $100 billion of them in total, and most of First Republic Bank's assets as well. That's according to the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which is First Republic Bank's primary regulator. You know, Last week, as the trouble that the bank was in worsened, the FDIC approached several larger lenders and said basically, take a look at First Republic. If it's something you'd want, submit a bid by Sunday, and we know several banks did that. The FDIC evaluated those bids. We learned about First Republic's failure and the outcome of that process shortly after midnight California time, just after 3 o'clock in New York. And I'll note, unlike what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, this time around, the FDIC did not use its emergency powers to do this. And J.P. Morgan's CEO Jamie Dimon said in a statement, the bank made its bid in a way that will minimize costs to the FDIC's Deposit Insurance Fund, and Layla says the cost will be about $13 billion.
9: Now, this is the third bank in the U.S. to fail. What happened this time at First Republic Bank that led to this failure?
3: Well, in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of those two banks in March, there was this fear we would see more bank runs. First Republic was swept up in that, and it immediately sought to reassure its customers and investors. It lined up additional financing, and when that didn't calm nerves, 11 of the biggest banks in the U.S. stepped in to offer First Republic a lifeline. They deposited $30 billion at First Republic Bank. That still didn't make much of a difference. Mm -hmm. First Republic's share price just kept falling. And last week when First Republic reported its earnings, we learned its customers had withdrawn way more money than Wall Street expected, more than $100 billion in deposits in March. So this was a bank that was really suffering. And we were at this cliffhanger moment, as one Wall Street analyst put it to me, everyone wondering what would happen next. Layla recognizing the situation was bad enough that something had to happen.
9: So, David, what does this announcement mean for customers of First Republic Bank?
3: For them, regulators and J.P. Morgan stress it should be business as usual. There are more than 80 First Republic Bank branches in eight states in the U.S., including in California and New York, and those customers will be able to access their money at those branches today. They're now automatically customers of J.P. Morgan Chase. I'll stress taxpayers are not on the hook here. J.P. Morgan and the FDIC are going to share in any losses on First Republic's loans. And that $13 billion cost I mentioned just a minute ago, that'll come out of a fund that banks pay into.
9: Now, David, there are probably people listening right now thinking, is my money safe in whatever bank I'm banking at? What does this move mean for the health of the banking sector, the markets? Is there more turmoil ahead?
3: Analysts I spoke with emphasized the circumstances around the failure of First Republic are unique, and this is unlikely to lead to the kind of volatility we saw after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapsed. And many other lenders said in their earnings recently that deposits at those banks have stabilized. Now, in terms of the market, there was hope and an expectation really among investors a deal like this would get hammered out before markets opened in Asia. Of course, that didn't happen, but this was squared away pretty tidily before the opening bell in New York.
9: And here is David Gurth. Thanks, David.
3: Thank you.
8: All right, it's a big day for many high school seniors. If they had applied to a bunch of colleges and were fortunate to be accepted at a number of them, today is the deadline for picking which one they'll be attending this fall. It's a key part of the decision that is going to be the cost of tuition. The Department of Education is out with new data that helps students compare the cost of attending school with the amount you can expect to earn after you graduate. But how much should this kind of data factor into picking a college? Professor Jeff Stroll is Director of Research at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Professor, a lot of data that weighs the cost of college against earnings after graduation. So how can students use that data to decide which college to go? to
34: well the data that we have out there lets us look at cost versus earnings often known as return on investment and students can take a look both at institutions and programs and I think they really need to take a look at the program data to help them compare so if they're in a region and there's a couple of schools, uh, I think it's very helpful for them to look and weigh out the costs and also in the national market so that they can look verse, uh, at one institution in New York versus California on their earnings uh, versus costs. Let them know how deeply in debt they'll go and what kind of earnings they potentially can make. And there's no way to account for all the variables, right? That go in between all that. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, you have to get a sense of when they're looking at the national market understanding that working in New York eventually uh, if that's one of their targets is going to be much more expensive than working in Montana so they need to really think about how that adjusts on the earnings but most importantly what do they want to do so don't really look at the institutional reputation but take a look at the program outcomes what kind of work do they want to do what's their major going to be and I think that's much more important than the institutional prestige Then,
8: Professor, if students know, if they absolutely know they're going to be saddled with debt when they graduate,
34: is a college education still worth it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the data, median debt right now is around $27,000. All this news, about $300,000 in debt. It's a really rarefied part of the market. So if your debt load's around $27,000, we look to people being able to pay that off in about a 10-year period of time as a good investment because the rest of your career is basically profit on the investment you've made in yourself through your education. And on average, college education pays off. Of course, not always. Uh, There are are programs that people need to look at that don't break poverty. I mean, some cosmetology, for instance, or some of the two-year and uh, one-year certificates don't pay off. So people need to be careful, this is for sure.
8: Now, a school's reputation and their naming sometimes factors into a lot of decisions. But you also say it's important to look behind the curtain. So what do you mean by that? Well, when
34: we look at the data, uh, let's say, compare Harvard versus Howard. And so if you want to get a, the reputation from Harvard, uh, you're going to, to go to the school. But if you pick a major that doesn't pay very well, and the other institution has costs that's a tenth uh, of Harvard, and you get the same return, the same earnings, why would you go to Harvard? And so these are the questions that people need to ask so the reputation mom or dad went to the school alumni or legacy status can be important to you but this when we start to get into education as a consumption good rather than a good that pays you back right is it that idea of return on investment you're investing in yourself So opening it up and understanding how the major plays into what you're going to earn becomes very important when you think about your lifelong career.
8: And Professor, about 30 seconds here. Um, It's ultimately the student that decides because they're gonna have to live with the consequences. They gotta pick the school that's right for them. But parents, how big of a role should parents have in this decision?
34: I think parents need to really help students understand the information, there's too much information there. So trying to navigate your way through this, all of us need guides and parents understand the data and the breadth of the data and the impact of the decisions perhaps better than the youth.
8: Professor Jeff Stroll is the Director of Research at the Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce. Professor, thanks.
34: Thank you.
9: The abundant water in California has been a boost for many animals and plants, including a super bloom of wildflowers. But for some animals, it's also been life-threatening. NPR's Lauren Summer takes us to the Central Valley where
28: rescues are underway for an endangered rabbit. The San Joaquin River is unrecognizable right now. This is a river that goes completely dry in some years because it's so heavily used in California. Now it's overflowing.
32: It's really good if you're a fish. The ducks and the waterfowl are really loving it right now.
28: Eric Hobson is refuge manager at the San Joaquin River National Wildlife Refuge. The river here has gone over its banks, swamping stands of cottonwood trees. We spot a beaver among them.
32: Yeah, the, the beavers, are, they're kind of homeless because their lodges and burrows are inundated. But we found that they're very quick to make a
28: new home. It's good for a lot of wildlife, but not all of them. We want to make wakes? Okay. We head out in an aluminum boat, looking for islands of dry land in all this water.
32: So we have this strip of high ground that isn't flooded, but some of this is going to be flooded when the water comes up another two or three fo- more feet.
28: That will give the wildlife nowhere to go, including what Hobson spots right ahead. So we do have a riparian brush rabbit. It's a brown rabbit, only a foot long. And it's highly endangered. The late
32: 1990s, they were thought to be near extinct. In fact, there was a a period of time where they are actually thought to be extinct.
28: This rabbit is in a wire cage, a small trap that hops in a set so it can be moved somewhere safer. It'll be vaccinated as well against a new threat, rabbit hemorrhagic disease, a fatal virus that recently arrived here. So far, Hobson and his team have rescued more than 360 endangered rabbits. Some were plucked from tree branches after the dry ground disappeared. These rabbits didn't always need saving, of course. In the past, when the river flooded, the rabbits would just move to higher ground.
32: Unfortunately, nowadays, most of that that natural high grounds right upslope from the floodplains is taken up with farmland.
28: Farm fields don't provide any shelter for the rabbits, so they have nowhere to go. Hobson says the Wildlife Refuge is trying to acquire more of this higher ground land, but it's tough in a prime agricultural area.
32: Very few farmers are willing to sell that land, and when they are, it's very highly priced.
28: But with climate change bringing bigger weather swings to California, including more flooding, expanding this habitat could be key for endangered rabbits and the whole ecosystem. Lauren Sommer, NPR News.
0: This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for being with WBUR on this Monday morning. Coming up in just a couple minutes on Morning Edition, the story of a woman with a dangerous pregnancy who was denied an abortion in her home state of Oklahoma and made a harrowing journey to Kansas for the procedure. It's eight nineteen.
6: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MetroWest Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best
28: gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings? Your joy? Your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity.
0: Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. Overcast skies gradually clear this morning as temperatures rise to a high of 66. It'll also be pretty windy. Tonight skies grow cloudy again and it falls to a low around 46. Tomorrow mostly cloudy with a high near 58. Showers and thunderstorms are likely throughout the day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 820. Today on the Common Podcast, the MBTA is facing yet another financial challenge. Their pension program could make the T insolvent by 2038. Host Daryl C. Murphy will explore the tea's financial future on the Common Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From Workday committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. It's Morning Edition from
9: NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil.
8: And I'm a. Martinez. Most states that ban abortion have an exception if a pregnancy endangers a patient's life. But how close to death must a person be in order to qualify for an abortion? NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has the story of one woman in Oklahoma whose doctors were forced to make that calculation. Now, it's a story that includes some disturbing details.
5: Before February, J.C. Statton wasn't particularly focused on Oklahoma's abortion bans. I kind of was like, well, that's not going to affect me. She's 25 and lives in central Oklahoma with her husband and their three kids, two seven-year-olds and an eight-year-old. They are a blended family with two kids from J.C.'s previous marriage and one from her husband's. Her husband, Dustin Statton, is an oil field technician, and her whole family goes fishing every day.
30: And I have two dogs. I got to throw that in
5: there, too. She and Dustin were using birth control, but took a if-it-happens-it-happens attitude towards pregnancy, she says. Then, in mid-February, she started to feel sick, nauseous and dizzy and weak. After several trips to the hospital, a blood test confirmed she was pregnant. So
30: we got excited, uh, picked out baby names, bought baby stuff.
5: When she was in her kitchen a few weeks later, on February 28th, she felt faint.
30: I felt like I was going to pass out and I just looked down and there is blood everywhere. My husband like grabbed the kids, grabbed me, went to the emergency
5: room. The hospital staff did her blood work several times and said the results were confusing and that she was probably having a miscarriage. The next day, at an appointment with her OBGYN, she learned she actually had a partial molar pregnancy, which happens when two sperm fertilize the same egg or one sperm fertilizes an egg and then duplicates. The result is an embryo with too much genetic material and a placenta that is a mass of cysts. J.C. says her doctor told her, It is non-viable, like
30: it is potentially cancerous.
5: On the ultrasound, her doctor showed her how the embryo was surrounded by grape-like cysts.
30: One of them had ruptured, causing me to bleed. And she had explained, like, if more rupture, you could bleed
5: out. The treatment for JC's condition is a dilation and curatage, or DNC, an abortion procedure that clears pregnancy tissue out of the uterus. Even though the embryo would never develop into a baby, there was fetal cardiac activity. J.C.'s doctor said she couldn't treat her at the Catholic hospital where she works. J.C. was transferred to another hospital, then another, Oklahoma Children's Hospital. She says medical staff there told her that her condition was serious. You, at the most, will last maybe two weeks. But still, fetal cardiac activity was detectable, and the doctors would not provide a DNC. When all of this was happening, Oklahoma had four different abortion bans on the books, and several had an extremely narrow exception that said, abortion is only legal if the patient's life is in danger and it's a medical emergency. Here's what JC remembers her doctors telling her.
30: They were very sincere. They weren't trying to be mean or say this bad, but they said, the best we can tell you to do is sit in the parking lot And if anything else happens, we will be ready to help you. But we cannot touch you unless you are crashing in front of us or your blood pressure goes so high that you are fixing to have a heart attack.
5: At the hospital, sometimes it was hard for JC to follow what was happening. She was so sick and weak. But she could tell how upset her husband, Dustin, was. He requested a meeting with the hospital ethics board, she says, but was refused.
30: I look over and he is just like head in his hands, this huge, like six foot guy. I remember him saying, he was like, I'm going to lose you. I'm going to lose our baby and I'm going to lose my other two kids.
5: Those are the children from JC's previous marriage. He's like, I lose
30: everything. I'll lose my family.
5: In a written statement, a spokesperson for OU Health, which runs both Oklahoma hospitals where J.C. Staten was seen, said the health system complies with all state and federal laws and regulations. By March 8th, over a week since she was diagnosed,
30: One of the doctors was explaining to us that we needed to either go to Colorado, Kansas,
5: New Mexico, places where abortion is illegal and she could be treated without waiting, Someone connected the family to the Trust Women Clinic in Wichita, Kansas, and she was able to get in for an appointment two days later. By this point, she was nine weeks pregnant. She drove to Kansas with her husband and mother-in-law, hoping she wouldn't bleed on the drive.
30: It was probably the longest three hours of my life
5: in that vehicle. When she finally got to the clinic, she found herself sitting alone in the procedure room, and for the first time, she started to cry.
30: All the emotions, all my thoughts, like, caught up with me right there. And I sat in there by myself and just cried and cried. And then the doctors and then the nurses come in. And they just sat with me and talked to me and held like held my hand. Sorry. Like, i really appreciative of
5: all of them. After the abortion, when she was stable enough to leave, she went out to the car where Dustin and her mother-in-law were waiting. As they drove past the front of the clinic, they covered J.C.'s face with a blanket so she wouldn't see or hear the anti-abortion protesters. My husband still has nightmares about it. J.C. Statton is still recovering. She needs to have her pregnancy hormone levels checked for weeks, maybe as long as six months, to make sure no cancer is developing. Physically, she still feels weak and tired, and mentally, it's been rough, she says. She says she is pro-life but she's decided to speak publicly about her experience because she thinks Oklahoma's abortion laws are dangerous and need to change. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News.
17: Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE.
8: This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for starting your Monday with WBUR. Coming up in five minutes on Morning Edition, humanitarian groups are struggling to get aid into Sudan, while foreign nationals try to get out of the country with little help from their governments. It's 829.
24: What makes a post-pandemic office building more attractive to employees? Well, it helps if you can make it breathe.
27: There's a greater awareness of the importance of fresh air, the quality of the air. I'm
24: Melissa Block. We'll go inside what will be J.P. Morgan's new headquarters on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
12: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation says the deposits and most of the assets of First Republic Bank have been purchased by JPMorgan Chase. The acquisition follows First Republic seizure by bank regulators over the weekend. The California-based bank struggled after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in early March. Last week, First Republic reported more than $100 billion in outflows during the first quarter and was exploring its options. First Republic's 84 branches in eight states are opening today as branches of J.P. Morgan Chase. The Writers Guild of America says its members are prepared to go on strike if a new three-year contract isn't agreed to by tonight. That's when the current contract with the major entertainment studios expires. NPR's Mandalit Del Delbarco has more.
24: Last time the writers went on strike, it stopped Hollywood production for 100 days, and that was in 2007. Back then, they were asking for better compensation when their work went on DVDs and Internet downloads like iTunes. Now, this time, they're trying to anticipate new technology. They're concerned about the use of AI to create content. And one of the big demands is to get paid more when their work shows up on streamers like Netflix and Amazon.
12: That's NPR's Del Barco reporting. This is NPR News.
24: From WBUR
0: in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. State data show that thousands of people have called Massachusetts' new helpline to access mental health care. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more on the new behavioral health helpline. 6,000
25: people have called the helpline since it began operating in January. The most common request has been for help getting in to see a provider. State Department of Mental Health Commissioner Brooke Doyle says that suggests that the line is improving access to help prevent emergencies.
1: That's actually an encouraging sign. We actually want to encourage people to seek help at the earliest possible point, before the crisis has occurred.
25: Helpline workers connect callers with providers and follow up to determine if care was appropriate. Anyone can call the line 24-7, regardless of insurance, and there's no cost to call. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah
0: Becker. To access the state's new behavioral health helpline, you can call or text 833 773 2445. There's a health warning in effect for Boston Harbor after a Sunday morning sewage discharge. The overflow occurred in the inner harbor in the area of Porter Street in East Boston. Boston public health officials are warning the public to avoid area waters through at least tomorrow morning. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology inaugurates its 18th president today. The ceremony for Sally Kornbluth takes place this afternoon at MIT's Cambridge campus. Kornbluth is a cell biologist and only the second woman to hold the position. MIT's previous president held the role for a decade. Shuttle buses will replace parts of the blue line this week for scheduled maintenance on the rails. Buses will run between Government Center and Wonderland Station today through Thursday, starting at 8 p.m. The T says it'll work to make bus service match train schedules. It's 8.33. We're funded
15: by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu.
0: The Bruins lost 4-3 to to the Panthers in overtime last night. That ends their pursuit of another championship. But the Celtics' playoff hopes are still alive and well. The team will face off against Philadelphia tonight in round two. And the Red Sox won their home series against Cleveland last night. Final score was 7-1. to They play against the Toronto Blue Jays at Fenway tonight. Cloudy skies will gradually clear this morning. We'll eventually have a windy day in the mid-60s. Tonight, back to overcast skies and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny in upper 50s, with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms anytime time during the day. It's 58
17: degrees in Boston at 834. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Grace. Based on the detective novels by Peter James, Grace and more original mysteries including The Bay and Karen Peary are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
8: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Ami Martinez in Culver City, California.
17: And I'm Leila
9: Falden in Washington, D.C. Leaders of the warring factions in Sudan have agreed, in theory, to extend a ceasefire from the weekend. But that ceasefire and almost all that have come before it haven't really stopped the fighting.
8: Thousands of people are still trying to flee the country, including many U.S. citizens and other foreigners. Ships are taking some to Saudi Arabia.
9: NPR's Aya Batraoui joins us from the port of Jeddah. Hi, Aya. Hi, Layla. Okay, so you're at the port right now. What are you seeing?
16: So I'm at a hot, windy, sunny port on the Red Sea coast of Saudi Arabia and I'm looking at a massive U.S. naval ship called the Brunswick that just got here this morning. It was traveling over 12 hours, it seems, overnight from Port Sudan and it is carrying the first U.S. naval evacuation of U.S. citizens. Around 100 U.S. citizens are on the ship and about 200 other citizens from other countries have boarded the ship. And this is um, not the first time, though, that countries have used their naval ships to disembark from Port Sudan and bring their citizens here. India has sent several ships, China has done the same, and Saudi Arabia is also sending its naval ships to bring on other citizens of other countries and bring them to the safety of Saudi Arabia.
9: So thousands of foreigners who've gotten to this port where you're at, what are people saying to you who've evacuated?
16: So yesterday I met a guy named Adil bashir he's a Sudanese-American who had been living in the capital Khartoum of Sudan for the past six months for work. His wife and kids live in Virginia. He was the sole American aboard a Saudi naval vessel that docked here yesterday. And here's what he told me Khartoum looks like.
29: A lot of bombs, a lot of bullets everywhere, dead bodies everywhere, destructions everywhere. and uh, Just people, scary.
16: So frightening situation in Khartoum. And then I asked him if he'd gotten any help from the U.S. State Department in evacuating Sudan.
29: Yes, the American embassy sent me an email like uh, three days ago. They asked me to leave within 48 hours and they arranged this evacuation for me.
25: So they
16: they put your name on a list for this boat and then you had to figure out how to get to Port Sudan on your own?
29: Yes, you have to get because they, they cannot do anything inside Khartoum. When I get to Port Sudan, I found everything arranged over there.
16: Right. And the reason the U.S. can't do anything inside Khartoum is because the U.S. and many other embassies have closed and evacuated their staff. It's also dangerous getting out of Khartoum. But once you get to Port Sudan, many people are just sleeping roughshod under tarps, But again, these are the lucky ones that have been able to take this route out safely. And there are still many more trying to do just that.
9: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like an easy journey at all for so many people. What else can you tell us about the situation in Port Sudan, where, as you describe, people are sleeping, trying to get out of the country?
16: Right, so there's also people from Syria and Yemen having trouble getting out and coming to Saudi Arabia. But look, the port finally received some international aid yesterday. A shipment of eight tons of medical aid arrived to Port Sudan from the International Red Cross. And this is significant because we just haven't seen aid agencies do much besides evacuate their own staff from Sudan. And meanwhile, life in the capital Khartoum has come to a complete standstill. Everything is shuttered. Hospitals are running dangerously low on supplies. Something like 60% of all the uh, hospitals around the country have lacking supplies, have shut Down. So there's still a lot of fighting going on, but it's hard to figure that out. Where?
9: Now, the people you've been speaking to are people who have another passport or are foreigners. What about Sudanese who don't have that second passport? How do they get out?
16: They can't get here. They're not allowed to come here. The Saudi Arabia does not host refugees, so they're trying to just make it across borders,
9: and that's a really hard journey as well. NPR's Aya Batrawi in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leila.
8: Some of Hollywood's film and TV writers are preparing to strike. Their labor union, the Writers Guild of America, is in talks with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers for a new contract. Now, a strike could start at midnight if a deal is not reached today. Get a sense on where things stand. I'm joined by Eric Haywood. He's a writer and director in TV and film. He's also on the WGA Negotiating Committee. Eric, as I mentioned, you're at the table there. What are the key issues in play
23: and how close are the two sides? There are several issues at play, probably more than we have time to completely get into. But in a nutshell, I would say some of the key issues really focus around compensation in the form of not only base pay, but in residual pay, and also working conditions. And a lot of these conditions have been severely impacted by the industry's shift to the streaming model over the past several years. It's really turned everything on its head in the last handful of years how close are the two sides though i know that uh, we're kind of getting to the
8: point where it's make it or break a deadline but how close are the two sides
23: well it's hard to quantify just because you know we've been negotiating through the weekend i'm literally (laughs) losing track of what day it is because we basically get up and we go to the offices and we meet and things are shifting you know it's a little bit of a moving target so where we are right now may not be and I'm sure won't be where we are come midnight Monday night and where we are at midnight on Monday is really all that matters. When
8: it comes to streaming though, this
23: shift on the part
8: of the industry away from theaters to streaming services, how does that affect the writers?
23: Well, in a number of ways. Primarily, you know, not too long ago, we had a model where your average broadcast network television show would air anywhere from 18 to 22, and sometimes even 24 episodes per year. That allowed writers to basically manage their finances in such a way that you could earn a living year to year. The shift to the streaming model, one of the key differences is a lot of these streaming shows will only make anywhere from six to eight to 10 episodes of a given season. And what that does is it shortens the amount of weeks that a writer works, which obviously impacts the amount of take-home pay that a writer gets, because most of us work on a weekly paycheck system. Also, the this, this shift to the streaming model has impacted writers in the form of reduced pay because a lot of writers, including the creators and showrunners of a lot of popular TV shows, are working for a weekly rate that is equivalent to what they may have made four or five, or in some cases, even 10 years ago when they were just coming up the ladder.
8: Now, if there winds up being a strike, Eric, how will viewers
23: feel this or notice this? Will any shows go away? It's a little hard to predict, which is one of the more uncertain elements of any kind of strike for this industry. I think it is generally assumed that the Saturday Night Lives, the daily shows, those have a much quicker turnaround than your average drama or comedy show. So those shows are expected to shut down pretty much immediately if there's a strike. Some of the other shows take a little bit longer to work their way through the pipeline, so viewers, in some cases, may not see an immediate impact. Some of these shows are still working their way through the post-production process. They're still being edited. They're still having music added and titles and visual effects. So in some cases, audiences may not see an immediate impact in terms of what's on their screens, but it will probably hit eventually. That's Eric Haywood, writer and director in TV and film. He's
8: also a member of the WGA negotiating committee. Eric, thanks. Thank you. And in a statement to NPR, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers say that they have, quote, approached these negotiations with the long-term health and stability of the industry as their priority and that they are fully committed to reaching a mutually beneficial deal. This is NPR News.
0: Thanks for listening to WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition, how some local theater companies turned the pandemic into an opportunity. It'll be cloudy through about mid-morning, then skies will gradually clear, highs will be in the mid-60s, and it'll be windy. Some clouds move back in tonight and temperatures fall to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy with highs in the upper 50s and showers and thunderstorms likely all day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 843.
6: WBUR supporters include Weston Nurseries, welcoming gardening season with a wide selection of trees, shrubs, perennials, and gardening products. Hopkinson, Chelmsford, and Hingham. WestonNurseries.com. Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And the lyric stage with Sister Act and Then There Were Nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th. LyricStage.com. Cambridge-based Moderna wants to expand
0: into Marlboro. It plans to build a manufacturing site for its vaccines there. The site would employ over 200 people. The company is asking for a 20-year tax exemption. UMass Boston is renaming its first dorm after the school's first black chancellor and his wife. J. Keith Motley helped spearhead the creation of the dorm during his time as chancellor. Both he and his wife, Angela, are considered pioneers in education for first-generation college students at UMass. The building will be renamed the Dr. J. Keith and Angela Motley Hall later this week. A South End bakery plans to close after more than 50 years in business. The owners of Joseph's Bakery say they're retiring. Family members who have been running the business for over a decade say they plan to open a new location with a new name. It's unclear when that'll happen. It's 844.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. SalemState.edu slash graduate.
0: You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Three years have passed since the pandemic shut down Boston area theaters, and many are still recovering. But for some theaters, the pandemic was also an opportunity to take a hard look at their artistic missions and workplace cultures. As WBUR's Amelia Mason reports, sometimes that meant throwing out the old rules completely.
33: In the summer of 2021, Watertown's New Repertory Theater lived the nightmare that theater companies all over the world had dreaded since the pandemic began. New Rep faced devastating financial losses and had no idea when live performances might resume. So the board decided to pause operations indefinitely. Danielle Galligan is vice chair of the board.
5: The lack of clarity around when we could actually reopen is part of what sort of just halted us in our tracks.
33: It looked like an ominous sign. Did New Rep's closure signal doom for Boston's other nonprofit theaters? But behind the scenes, New Rep's board was working hard to bring the theater back.
0: We realized it was a
5: gift to be able to sort of take time to try to helm something that would come back in a stronger iteration of itself and meet the moment, meet the time.
33: The board unveiled the new New Rep eight months later. The biggest change? No more artistic director running the show. Today, three resident artists lead new rep together. (laughs) On an afternoon in March, resident artists Michael Hisamoto and Lois Roach take a break from watching auditions in the theater's black box. It's been one year since they and actress Maria Hendricks took on the job of running new rep, and a lot has changed. Artistic decisions are made collaboratively now. The theater scaled back the number of productions and dialed in on work centering LGBTQ characters and people of color. Last season it launched the Pipeline Project, a residency program for emerging playwrights to develop new work. Hisamoto says the changes also extend to workplace culture.
15: There's so many things that we as artists have put up with for you know decades. Artists working two, three jobs, you know, pay being below minimum wage at times.
33: To that end, new rep instituted a $20 per hour minimum wage and cut back on expenses like costumes and sets. That's in contrast to typical stage productions, where Hisamoto says it's routine to spend more money on the lumber for a set than on the actor's salaries.
15: And so me looking at a spreadsheet like that, seeing actors being paid less than the wood that they're standing on, is not a model that interests me.
33: The pandemic prompted other local theaters to make radical changes as well. In Jamaica Plain, the fringe company Open Theatre Project dissolved its board. Now members make leadership decisions together. They also began the work of recruiting more members of color. Company member Dev Luthra says the pandemic drew issues of equity to the fore.
23: And there was also
27: the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and others. And so there, for me, anyway, there was an atmosphere in the air that invited us to question how we were doing, you know, what we were doing and how we were doing it.
33: The George Floyd protests were a flashpoint in Boston theater, prompting workers to call out major institutions for racist and unequal practices. Many theaters rolled out anti-racist action plans that included staff trainings and diversity consultants, initiatives that cost
24: money. I think right now is when it starts getting tough.
33: Katherine Peterson is the executive director of the nonprofit Arts Boston, which has been surveying Boston theaters throughout the pandemic. She says some theaters may decide they can't afford big systemic changes in the face of lower ticket sales and an end to federal aid.
24: One of the things that the arts need to continue doing as we do recover is not to go back to where we were, but to rebuild to a better place.
33: New Rep may be especially well-positioned to do that, even though it barely survived the pandemic. That's because starting over gave the theater a chance to better live up to its values. Here's resident artist Michael Hisamoto again.
15: We're putting the people first. We're seeing actors not only as artists, but you know, writers and people bringing their own stories and autobiography all to the forefront so that we can really prioritize taking care of people in our community.
33: With that mission in mind, new rep forges on. The staff is gearing up to open the black box for a three-week run of a play in June, their first big production since the pandemic began. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason.
0: Tomorrow on WBUR, how two museums have navigated challenges and change since the pandemic began. It's a Monday morning in, in Boston and you're with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next few minutes, the government is releasing new construction spending data today. The Marketplace Morning Report tells us what those numbers may mean for housing, office, and retail space. It's
27: 8.50. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake, then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse, smuggler's den, foreign paradise, or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mom on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift at wbur.org.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Financial regulators have sold First Republic Bank to J.P. Morgan, marking the third failure of an American bank since March. A manhunt continues in Texas for a man suspected of shooting and killing five people. And the first naval evacuation of U.S. citizens from Sudan has landed as thousands continue to flee fighting in the warring nation. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org. In your forecast, clearing skies this morning make way for a windy, mostly sunny afternoon in the mid-60s. Tonight, back to cloudy skies and mid-40s. Tomorrow, mostly cloudy and upper 50s with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 852.
31: We have the second biggest bank failure of all time to report this morning, but rest assured, customers of First Republic, all of your money is tucked
24: safely into the biggest bank in the country. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairytale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com.
31: It is now a third bank to collapse in this volatile spring for the financial services industry. First Republic Bank, a medium-sized firm, was scooped up over the weekend by J.P. Morgan Chase in a deal worked out by federal and state regulators. There's hope. This is the tail end of the March banking madness, a third shoe dropping after Silicon Valley and Signature Banks failed seven weeks ago. Eric Gordon is a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Good morning hello david first of all very important those who kept deposits of any size in first republic and hadn't taken them out in the last few weeks their money is now over at jp morgan the biggest bank rest easy your money's over there
4: yeah no problem and in fact you can go to your republic bank branch which as of this morning will be a
31: jp morgan chase branch nice of jp morgan to step in here the ceo says the government asked and they did They're aware that a bunch of money is coming its way to help with this, with the costs, from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, right?
4: Yeah, they're going to get a backstop on losses, a $50 billion loan to do the deal, and they expect to recognize a one-time gain of $2.6 billion. So it's not entirely a matter of civic duty.
31: And so will people now conclude it's good to have huge, too-big-to-fail banks around to help when the going gets tough?
4: Yeah, I mean, J.P. Morgan Chase is now too big to be too big to fail. Uh, And, you know, it runs against current government policy. Current administration doesn't like big. They're going after big. They say, you know, these institutions already are too big. In fact, this deal makes J.P. Morgan so big that it needs approval from the OCC, the Officer of the Controller of the Currency, to even go through.
31: Now, we're talking about bank regulation, We heard from both the Federal Reserve and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation last week criticizing themselves for not doing enough to supervise the two other banks that failed seven weeks ago. Here we are again, right? Uh, So they're going to beef that up? They need to make some changes.
4: I mean, it seems to be systemic. The regulators, the people that we rely on to oversee these
31: banks, don't seem to see very much. Let's talk about causes for a second here. First Republic customers with texts and headlines on their smartphones started saying, I'm pulling out my money. What about you? And so all these deposits fled. But also something else, right? First Republic was also on the wrong side of one of the great challenges of our time, right? Interest rates are rising and what should have been safe holdings of government bonds weren't so safe if you need the money in a hurry. First Republic not only
4: had safe government bonds, but it had a lot of really jumbo real estate loans. Because remember, its clients tend to be really wealthy people. So they have these big real estate loans, and the bank made a fatal choice. Instead of making the loans and reselling them to other investors, like most banks do, First Republic held on to those loans, and just like the government securities, their
31: value plummeted. Now, Eric, if we step back from this story a bit, banks are supposed to be solid, safe, granite like protectors of our money. I mean, they have big columns out front that look very safe. How do we let them get risky like this?
4: You know, we've let banks go from being those safe bedrock institutions to being sort of speculators. They're sort of speculating on interest rates. They're using a lot of leverage. They're really maximizing profits, not safety, and you wonder whether they have wandered from their essential purpose and need to be reined in in some way.
31: Always good to talk to Eric Gordon. He's a professor at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. Thank you very much. My pleasure, David. I see Dow futures are up slightly, 20 points now, with the Federal Reserve likely to raise interest rates again this week.
24: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Baird, dedicated to attracting and retaining talent from across the financial industry, providing stability and continuity for client relationships. More information at BairdDifference.com. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying.
31: We have new data later today on construction spending. Higher interest rates might drag these numbers down. We'll see. And builders are still having trouble finding the workers they need. Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval reports.
35: If you ask non-residential builders about the industry's major stressors, workforce shortages tops the list.
32: Most of our members will tell you they got more work than than they can actually build, largely because they don't have enough people to do the work.
35: That's Brian Termail with Associated General Contractors of America. He says shortages are most acute in boots and a hard hat jobs like
8: roofers, concrete masons, uh, stone masons,
12: pipe fitters.
35: All while the government invests in infrastructure and manufacturing projects that will cost taxpayers more to build, says Aniban Basu, CEO of Sage Policy Group Consulting Firm.
20: We don't have enough workers to do any of this. And so what we're doing is very expensive to accomplish.
35: He says one way to widen the pool of payrolled construction workers is immigration reform, so companies can train up the undocumented people working in construction without skirting the law. Stan Merrick of Merrick Construction agrees.
8: We would take probably, in Texas, half of the undocumented workers out of the shadows, put them on jobs where they pay payroll taxes, receive training, safety, work comp, and elevate the lives of those workers.
35: Of course, for Congress, immigration reform is a tall order. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace
31: and back to our top story the collapse of first republic bank with all deposits now available at chase banks today jp morgan chase stock is up four point three percent pre-market first republic stock is at two dollars and thirty cents in pre-market trading now down from hundred and forty six dollars earlier this year it's hard to understand what assets would underlie these there is a term for this cigar butt investing like distasteful little things you might retrieve from a sidewalk for a real walk on the wild side. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio with the
6: Marketplace Morning Report. APM, p.m., American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall, williamjames.edu and the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and change makers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
7: I'm WBUR Arts and Culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.